Greg Abbott leaving Texans to freeze to death while Ted Cruz flits off to Cancun. Greg Abbott not taking the pandemic very seriously and letting thousands of Texans die. That, to me, is really the the Beto case that he will make to voters is, do you want the state to be run by a Trump ideologue or do you want the state to be run by someone who recognizes that every day shouldn't be a show out of Austin? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Benji Messner, founder of New River Strategies, who has put together a career in what he calls democratic data as a data and analytics consultant, and now runs a growing firm in the space. Benji was previously Director of Data and Analytics at Beto for America, the presidential campaign of Beto O'Rourke. He honed his skills at coordinated campaigns in Missouri and Virginia and at NGP Van, where he was a software engineer, and Precision Strategies, where he was a director. We had a lot to talk about, including what he's learned as an entrepreneur in the political data space. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Benji Messner of New River Strategies. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Benji, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Thanks, Nathaniel. My name is Benji Messner. I'm the founder of New River Strategies here in Washington. I've been working in democratic data for my whole career. Luckily, no one has made me find a real job yet. I started out working in Virginia politics because all of our races here in D.C. are pretty safely democratic. Worked for Mark Warner and Cree Deeds. Worked at Van and then NGP Van, where you and I met. Worked for Tim Kaine and Claire McCaskill. Came back to NGP Van. Went to Precision Strategies for a number of years. Uh, founded by a lot of the 2012 Obama folks. Did some great work there. Went to work for Beto O'Rourke's campaign for president. He is not president, of course, but will make an excellent governor of Texas and now have been out on my own for about two years. Yep, there it is in a nutshell. Are you glad you went down this path? I am. It's been a really rewarding and fun path of building technology and using data to elect Democrats. I was just saying to someone the other day that my hope uh, when I get to the pearly gates is that some of the people and policies I've worked for uh, will maybe serve as a check mark on my behalf. And the mission, you know, I think is what keeps all of us doing this work. You mentioned you you started in democratic data, and I didn't know data could have a party, but what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> well, we are the science and evidence-based party, right? But my work has been sort of in this community that, you know, Nathaniel, of course, you have almost helped found, right, with NGP, of people who are bringing technical skills to democratic politics around numbers and using them to make decisions. Originally sort of very focused on field and organizing programs and sort of moved out to encompass every aspect of the campaign. Was that first job with the Democratic Party of Virginia? It was, yeah, on the coordinated campaign in 2008 for Mark Warner and Barack Obama and all of our congressional candidates. At Georgetown during that time? I had actually just graduated from high school that year, and I, I deferred college to work on the campaign. And, uh, you know, I got to say it was the, the best decision I ever made. Um, 
really set me off on a good professional path, learned a ton, and even made some friends, you know, who were at my wedding a decade plus later, uh, just friends for life. What was it about that direction, that job that made you want to like postpone college and, and start to dig in? Well, it was really the energy of being on the campaign. I had done some local work here in D.C., but nothing like that. And it really um, it felt energizing. You know, obviously, 2008, all this Obama excitement, you know, everybody ready to get George Bush out of office felt like a new leaf was turning for the country. And it was so cool, you know, to see the work I was doing, helping in a very, very, very small way with the campaign. You know, the report I produced that would be used to help coach an organizer to get more shifts, to knock on more doors, to win. The environment and the work was just really something I had never had before, and it was just really exciting to be a part of. Yeah, and it was sounds like it was a good fit for kind of the skills and talents that you had or were, and were developing. Yeah, yeah, that uh, I, I think that's right. You know, a lot of questions of what is happening and why is it that way that I think are great to answer with data and where the answers can really lead to real improvements. So how did you interface then college with this beginning of a career a little earlier than some people? Yeah, I mean, you know, in in many ways, I was sort of uh, half present for college. I'm sure my professors would say, you know, a quarter to a third present. I worked throughout college, including at what is now NGP Van. And, you know, that was really fun for me to sort of get to do both, to sort of develop skills in class that I could apply to work. You know, work probably made me a less terrible student. Uh, and certainly, you know, set me up to do more out of college than uh, I might have otherwise been able to. You mentioned NGP Van, and as you mentioned, it's something that I was part of. What was your experience there that first time around? That first time around, I had just come off of the Credeeds campaign in Virginia. We had lost by so much, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I had you know, spent the whole year being the only race of any importance uh, and getting so much love from the van team, from, you know, Jim and Mark all the way down to, you know, Jennifer and Torvik on the support team. And it was so cool to get to see how the sausage was made. I'm embarrassed to admit this out loud, but just, you know, having all of my curiosities and questions answered and seeing what a real software product was like, was a ton of fun and very informative for my later career and work. Uh, and just, you know, Nathaniel, as you know, some of the nicest and best people you can ever work with. People I still talk with every day, people really committed to the mission and to doing it through software. Definitely a bunch of nice people. After college, what was next for you? After college, I went to St. Louis, Missouri to work for Claire McCaskill on the coordinated campaign there. It was my first time spending any significant time in the Midwest. I always joked it was my semester abroad. <laughs> I loved and still love St. Louis, um, except for the pizza, which is just absolutely an abomination. That was a really great campaign. You know, we we were lucky enough that Todd Aiken put words to his beliefs. We you know were lucky enough to win there. Uh, and it was, you know, another great opportunity to see how data can apply to campaigns and how, um, you know, the the use of information can really improve a program. And I also just learned a ton from the rest of the team there, people who had been running campaigns in all kinds of environments, a bunch of folks who had worked for John Edwards uh, both times and seen the highs and lows of that. Were coordinated campaigns in Missouri a lot different than in Virginia? Uh, not, not really. The chief difference was, you know, the political environment, um, St. Louis politics, Kansas city politics, you know, very different flavor from Northern Virginia or even Richmond or the Tidewater. And that was a really, you know, interesting learning experience as well to see what, uh, you know, a big city political operation was like in sort of a cool old school way. And what, what were you actually doing? So in my role, uh, 
as the deputy coordinated campaign director, it was two things. One was helping out with some of our paid communications, the paid canvas, some of the direct mail, you know, making sure we had the right universes of voters and that those programs were going as planned um, and overseeing, you know, the data and targeting, you know, which voters' doors we wanted to knock on, how our field programs were performing, were there opportunities to do more. Again, you know, some of the same um, same analytical questions of what's happening and why and what can we do about it. You went back to NGP Van after that, I did. Right? I did. Why? And how was it a lot different? Well, it was a lot bigger by the time I went back. Uh, and even even that was just a fraction of what it is now and what it's grown into. Um, I went back uh, because I loved the people and I liked working with them and it was interesting work. But I think it helped me realize that despite all that, I didn't want to be a professional software engineer. Uh, not because there's anything wrong with it, just because it's not what I am best suited to. And frankly, at the end of the day, I was always sort of a, a B minus programmer. So I'm, I will always be very grateful to Stu and, and John and everyone for taking me back. But it was uh, not, I think, the best long term fit just for my own sanity. I've interviewed a couple people from Precision on this podcast. It's a uh, group that had a lot of prominent political folks. How did you land there and what was that experience like? Well, uh, it was sheer dumb luck. I saw the posting that they were looking to hire for someone for data and analytics and someone I'd worked with in Missouri, uh, who's still a friend now, was working there. She sort of helped me through the application. I don't know, I went through two or three rounds with them and uh, I was lucky enough to make it through. As you mentioned, Nathaniel, it was a ton of incredible people, Jenna Malley, Dylan, Stephanie, Teddy, um, you know, people I'd only dreamed of working with and for. Uh, and it was really an exciting thing to be part of. Those people you mentioned, some of them have found their way into the current administration. What does Precision do? What was your work? Sure. So not to... Uh, not to quote from the pitch deck too much, but um, a lot of what Precision did and does is sort of movement building and very broadly defined organizing. That doesn't mean you know field programs or direct voter contact necessarily, but you know helping people understand the work that's being done, getting people to be a part of something bigger than themselves. You know, a lot of great work for groups like March for Our Lives and the Liberal Party of Canada. And then, um, you know, really interesting corporate projects as well, you know, communicating the importance of redeveloping land that had been left vacant for years and bringing jobs and opportunities to places that didn't have them. My work on the data and analytics side was around targeting program analysis. You know, again, sort of who are we talking to? Why are we talking to them? What are we going to say to them? Um, and, you know, what was so fun and interesting about Precision was, you know, that it was very integrated. The digital team and the comms team and the data team were all working together to solve those kinds of problems, uh, which was new for me and a really exciting opportunity. What was like a notable client that you worked on that you or that's representative of your work or you felt like made a big difference? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I keep coming back to this, but my my personal favorite is the the Liberal Party of Canada in their 2015 federal election campaign. The Liberals had governed Canada for a significant chunk of the 20th century. Justin Trudeau, uh, son of a previous prime minister, had taken the reins of leadership in 2011 when the party was in third place for the first time, I think, ever. And they were in dire straits. They hadn't won in a long time. Stephen Harper had been prime minister since 2006 as a conservative, you know, very much in the George W. Bush mold. And thanks to the prime minister and his team, and in some small way, I'd like to think us at Precision, we managed to go from third place to first by a huge margin. 
and really sort of restore Canada to, I think, the track that most people think it's on of social democracy, you know, sort of more progressive than the U.S. And that was just really, really exciting and um, something I'll, I'll never forget. What do you think you offered to a, a foreign leader that they wouldn't have been able to do on their own? The biggest thing was sort of some of the tactics of U.S. style campaigning. Um, a lot of work on the digital front. They had a, a really great digital team that I think just needed a, a little support from us, you know, with modern techniques and platforms and that kind of thing. And also using data and analytics in some interesting ways. The Canadian system, of course, is parliamentary. There are 336 ridings. And knowing you know in which writings you need to invest in order to get a majority is a, a very difficult problem especially with you know a multi-party system not entirely dissimilar from you know an electoral college approach but much more complicated and we helped them sort of do the modeling and targeting exercises the obama 2012 campaign really um really did well on so i think those those really contributed during that uh, five plus years you were at Precision, we probably noticed that there was a presidential election in this country uh, and that some of your folks uh, got involved in that ill-fated Trump-Clinton contest. What was your perspective on that one? To me, the the 2016 election for Democrats was a perfect storm of problems Rightly or wrongly, I think a lot of Americans have negative views of Secretary Clinton, I would suggest wrongly. Obviously, the Trump campaign had some assistance from a foreign power. The Clinton campaign could have made some different choices. To me, it was sort of you know the perfect storm of all of these factors lining up, right? If we had had one fewer, we, we would have been fine. We lost the whole election by a combined total of under 100,000 votes, of course, but so much just sort of lined up against us that, you know, it was unfortunately not something we could push through. And I think sort of as a, a counter argument there, you know, the Biden campaign really had the the opposite sort of experience. They were, of course, able to learn from the Clinton campaign's misfortune. There's no other way to put it. And I think plan in a different way that sort of covered more Bases, and as a result, you know, they had a, a much bigger win than Trump did in 16. Yeah. What, what did you do, uh, if anything, during those two? For the 2016 cycle, I was working with the DSCC on, on a lot of U.S. Senate races. Um, you know, in the Senate, we actually, unfortunately, didn't, of course, did not take back the majority, but were able to, you know, win a seat in New Hampshire and sort of protect some of our incumbents. And, you know, again, it was sort of the, the same work of how we use data and analytics to make very difficult decisions, you know, in an environment with so many incumbent members, some of whom were not facing good odds, how to prioritize resources is very challenging. Uh, last year, you know, I did a, a ton of ballot initiative work on Medicaid expansion, minimum wage, payday lending reform, paid leave. It's been really interesting to move sort of to the issue advocacy side and see how differently people respond when it's a policy on the ballot and not a politician. So during this time since you started your career uh, in Virginia politics through 2020, did much change in terms of being a person working on democratic data, as you put it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, personally, I have considerably more gray hair um, and I'm a lot more tired. But I think more importantly, um, I, I think there have been a few developments that are net uh, quite positive. One is just more people, I think, getting interested in politics and participating. You know, 2008 saw a ton of people volunteering for the first time, you know, donating for the first time. I think every cycle since those numbers have gone up, right, in terms of people being interested, people, you know, who had been eligible to vote before but hadn't changing their minds. Obviously, on our side, Donald Trump was very helpful there. And that enthusiasm is great, right? Like, I think 
it, it is objectively true that the more people who participate in democracy, the better off we are, even if some of those people vote the wrong way. And the other thing is just the flood, the absolute flood of money into politics, but specifically into political technology and political data. Everybody has a product to sell. Everybody has one neat trick that no one else has conveniently thought of that your campaign can take advantage of. And on balance, I think that's been a little more mixed. A lot of things that can be solved with technology are not necessarily technology problems. Why would you jump out of uh, a job where I don't know, your title seemed to go from principal to managing principal to director. Uh, so you're probably moving up some kind of hierarchy there to go work on a, a long shot presidential campaign. Well, um, I don't know if my wife fed you that question or what. I'll, I'll choose to believe <laughs> she didn't. No. <laughs> Two reasons. You know, one, it's always been a dream of mine to work on a presidential campaign. And I think that's something that everyone in politics should should do at one point or another. Um, and the other is, you know, I, I love the whole precision team. I flatter myself that I'm still pretty close to them and we still collaborate from time to time. But it had just been a number of years. It was time to think about something new, not because anything was wrong, just to scratch an itch. And I will say, you know, it's obviously disappointing that Beto didn't win the nomination. I still think he would have been a very good president, but it was a great adventure. I really developed an affection I did not expect for El Paso, which is a, a wonderful city. And Juarez, the whole borderplex, um, I think really, I'm a very sarcastic person usually. I mean this sincerely. I think, you know, that that region really represents the best of a lot of what America can be with people coming in from another country, in this case, Mexico, and really sort of the melting pot that we all aspire to, it happens there. Beto seemed to have some strong opinions about how campaigning ought to be done and had run a close race statewide. And I assume learned uh, quite a bit from doing that as well as from his congressional races, what was the relationship between what he was trying to do as a candidate and what the campaign was trying to do and the data and analytics part that you were heading up? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I really love about Beto is his formidable skill as a retail campaigner. If we had been able to get him in front of every Iowa caucus goer, every New Hampshire primary voter, et cetera, he would have won those by double-digit point majorities. Unfortunately, though, I think running for president, running for United States Senate is just a little bit bigger than running for Congress. And, you know, it was his campaign that he ran the way he wanted to, as he should have. But, you know, our, our role from a data and analytics perspective was less to say this is the best way to spend the money and more, you know, the, these are the voters where we could have the most effect if we got Beto in front of them. So it was interesting, you know, a different sort of problem to solve, a different question to answer. You know, my only regret is just that we couldn't get everyone to meet him because I think the outcome would have been really different. Uh, he just announced that he's going to run for governor. I read an article about the math of that, which is very daunting, I think, in Texas, especially in a midterm that the Democrats are in power where you tend to struggle. I think if I were him, I might sit this one out and wait for a better cycle because you only have so many swings at it sometimes in politics. On the other hand, you want to contest all of these races with your best candidates and He's certainly a strong candidate. How do you read it? Is it enough to like pull you out of your new company and go work for him again? What, what do you think about his race out there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I should be so lucky to have that opportunity. The way I think about it is, you know, if you look at the past two years, three, four years of Texas, what you see, unsurprisingly, is a total failure of Republican quote-unquote governance, right? Greg Abbott leaving Texans to freeze to death while Ted Cruz flits off to Cancun, Greg Abbott not taking the pandemic very seriously and letting 
thousands of Texans die, seemingly for no reason other than to avoid angering President Trump. I haven't spoken with Beto about this, but my guess, knowing him a little bit, is that he's outraged by that, as I think most Americans are, and certainly all Americans should be. And I think his political bet, to the degree that he's even thought about it through this lens, is most Texans, most Americans, for you know, all intents and purposes, don't really want to think about who's running for governor or who is governor. They just want their kids to go to a school that is safe and clean and will give them a good education. And they want their power to be on in February and in April and November. And they want a deadly pandemic to be over so they can go back to their own lives. And I think that to me is really the the Beto case that he will make to voters is do you want the state to be run by a Trump ideologue or do you want the state to be run by someone who recognizes that every day shouldn't be a show out of Austin? Somehow the statewide officials in Texas are running a culture war. It's unseemly at best and appalling in my view. It's the sort of thing where you might think it would make them beatable. And yet time after time, we see that sort of person getting reelected in a red place. When you look at numbers, when you look at that state in the voting age population, do you see a, a path? I think so. We're what, 50 or 51 weeks out from the election. So please don't hold me to this. But I think there's a path for the very simple reason that things haven't really been quite this bad even in years past, you know, as crazy as President Trump was and is, his actions didn't really affect the Texas energy grid or, you know, the Texas public schools in the way that Greg Abbott's actions do. To me, that's really the key factor here is after two, basically two years of just nonstop insanity, I think 51 plus percent of Texans are ready to say, why don't we try something else? The past few years have shown it isn't about Trump. Um, it's about Abbott. And here's a guy who's giving us a concrete plan for how he's going to be different. To me, you know, it's interesting to contrast that to Glenn Youngkin in Virginia the other week, who I think had a lot of success because he was able to successfully convince people that he wasn't Donald Trump. Um, you can debate the merits of the McAuliffe campaign strategy to call him Trump from now until the end of time. But the fact of the matter is um, he, Youngkin, was able to prove he wasn't. And I, I have to imagine Beto is going to, as all Democratic candidates should, you know, take a leaf out of that book and focus more on what they can do as opposed to on who the opponents are. I have a, a soft spot, I think, as you know, for people who start their own firms in this space. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to catch up with you, that you had gone out on your own. What is New River Strategies exactly? We are a new company, uh, just two years now. And uh, the way I like to talk about us is we use data analytics and technology to move people to action and to help people make better decisions. So Maybe you're running a campaign. Maybe you are trying to get people to volunteer for your nonprofit. Maybe you're selling a product. We will help you achieve that goal using data and analytics, finding the right people, making sure you're reaching out to them in the right way, saying the right thing, and make sure that when you're spending money and running your program, you're doing so in a way that will lead to success. So would that be basically the same stuff you were doing for precision, for these candidates? How is your offering different than other folks out there? Sure. Well, um, I think there are two things. One, you know, I'm a, a big believer in just because you can doesn't mean you should. I mentioned earlier, you know, there are all these vendors selling cool tools, you know, blockchain, direct voter contact, relational organizing, texting, I'm trying to get paid by the buzzword more. But, you know, at the end of the day, what value do those things add, right? I think we too often lose sight of key fundamentals, like have a message that tests well and communicate it broadly. 
And that really undergirds a lot of our approach um, is just sort of making sure that the basics are executed right and making sure that we crawl before we walk. I think too often as a party, we get caught up in shiny objects without making sure that we've eaten our spinach first. Uh, the other thing, and I, I will try not to bore you too much with this, but we have some very interesting products and processes that we've developed over the past couple of years to handle data and process data that I think are unique to us and you know provide insights that you can't get anywhere else. Tell me about those. Well, um, our sort of flagship campaign product, we are tentatively calling auto PTV or path to victory as part of our, you know, data analytics work. We are very much not communications people. So if anyone has a better name, I would welcome that. I like how PTV sounds, sounds like three letters together, which is my preference for naming. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up as <laughs> you may know, I'm from DC originally. And I remember as a kid driving uh, Northeast on Nebraska Avenue, crossing Connecticut and seeing this red brick building that had NGP Software Inc. on it and uh, wondering what that was. I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, and I knew it was a software company, but I had no idea what it was. And so it's it's great that years later we are now That, that was a five-person software company. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what AutoPTV does that I, I think is cool and that I don't think is really offered out there on the market we take, you know, your models, your voter file, we take a bunch of assumptions that you give us, you know, the cost per point of television, costs for digital mail, etc. We smush it all together, which is both a technical term and a technical process. And we spit out uh, different campaign plans and budgets that you as a campaign manager can pick from. What I have found from years of work is that every campaign manager has two things in common. One, they are smart people who are really good at politics, otherwise they wouldn't have that job. And two, they do not have the time or the energy or the inclination to sort through tons of data to you know, arrive at a decision. They just are too busy. And so this product is designed for them really to help them say, within the constraints that we have, this is the best or worst or better thing we can do. There's a tool out there called Warchest, which is a campaign budgeting tool. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of campaigns use QuickBooks. Is there any integration with tools that campaigns already use for budgeting? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question also, because it lets me clarify, you know, we're definitely not competing with those tools. I've seen what Warchest does. I love it. I have no interest in rebuilding it. Josh and his team have done such a good job. Um, I wouldn't even know where to start if, if, if I wanted to. Uh, we've had some great conversations with them about, you know, how can we help managers by connecting our tools? And, you know, I, I look forward at some point in the future to making that happen. So you you have this process called smushification, I assume. Yeah, yeah that's right. What is getting smushed and what um, is coming out the other side? Sure. I like to think about those uh, Play-Doh machines, you know, that I, I had as a kid, maybe your children had, where you can... You can yeah, you can get like a nice star-shaped... Exactly. Uh, like worm coming out of them. Exactly. I, I know or yep. there's, you know, a spaghetti attachment or yep. something like that. Um, Green spaghetti. Exactly. Um, you know, now I guess it's just made with spinach. But um, what we take in is sort of everything you have, your models, your voter file data all of the budget constraints you know about. You know, we know this is how much television costs and we don't want to spend more than 30% of our budget on TV or whatever it is. So it's really about the voter contact options that you have? Right, that's right. Is there a way where you're comparing like between online and cable and TV or is it also targeting like who you're supposed to reach or tell me more about it? Yeah, no, that's you have it exactly right. You know, we're able to take data that exists from research many brilliant people have done and say, this is, you know, the usual effect we expect from a cable ad at this point in time. This is the usual effect we can expect from digital GOTV or whatever. Smushing all of that together lets us say, you know, if you spend this money at this time in this fashion, that's more or less advantageous than 
doing it a different way. And of course, you know, this has to be interpreted with some grain of salt, right? It's absurd to suggest that we can precisely predict human behavior down to the decimal point. But even helping someone say option A is better than option B without having to do a bunch of work by hand, I think has been a a big time saver. You know, as much as I say I have a soft spot for people hanging up their own shingle, hanging out their own shingle, I guess is the expression. I always thought it was hanging up, but you might be right. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, Anyway, there's a shingle involved or a sign painted on a shingle. I also know it's really hard to do. It's hard to go out there to create a new entity, to find customers, to talk them into paying you for something. How has that gone? Well, I would first say I definitely agree with you. Um, I was very lucky to have family who loved me and my wife who was willing to put up with me working from home. And I was very lucky to have past experience and past contacts. And I was very lucky to have one project to start that ensured I wasn't going to starve to death. So in that regard, I'm very grateful and I feel very lucky for all of that, uh, which I know many people don't have. I will say it's been really fun and exciting to get to do this business half of stuff, which I really hadn't known much about. I'm probably going to hold off on calling myself a job creator and taking an ad out in Republican Monthly, but it is great also to get to work with other folks and bring in and help develop new talent. The thing that I'm proud of is that customers and and clients have referred us to other people, which I think is possibly the greatest compliment anyone can give. And that really has been responsible for getting us from January 2020 to here. Who have you worked for? Well, uh, we are continuing to do a lot of ballot initiative work. Um, I think we're still sort of figuring out the details of what will be on the ballot next year, but I was just part of a policing reform initiative in Cleveland and a minimum wage in Tucson, Arizona. We're doing some really interesting immigration work with a great nonprofit. And then we're also doing some corporate projects to you know, help spread the word about you know the impact a large manufacturer has in communities across the country. And it's also just interesting to get to see what big companies are like. Very different from a political campaign or even NGP Van with its hundreds of employees. You kind of alluded to job creation. Have you hired? Um, are you just working with contractors or other small businesses? What's the what's the state of sort of employment at New River? Sure. Well, the the state of employment is strong, just like the state of our union. We're up to five, including me, and that's both people on the consulting side and on the software development side. And we are hiring. So if you have, let's say, four to six years of experience using data and analytics on campaigns, we would love to hear from you. We are anticipating a productive and busy cycle and, and definitely looking to staff up. Well, I do have the requisite skills probably then. Great. We would love to have you. Yeah, Nathaniel, I think we could easily find you an intern position. You know, we pay $20 an hour. Uh, We're very proud of that. So if if you're able to start, you know, December 1st, we'll get you signed up. It's significantly more than I'm making doing this podcast. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll work on that. I'm sure we can find you an advertiser. Okay. I remember, as we alluded to earlier, having a company of five people, that's substantial. You can do a lot with five people, honestly. You can grow from there also. Um, what, what are your aspirations for your company in the longer term? Well, uh, that's actually a question I'm struggling with a lot these days. So if you have any ideas, I would welcome them. In the next two or three years, you know, I'd like to get to maybe 10 people. I'd like to win some more campaigns. I'd like to keep building out our, our products. We, we also have a product called Bluebell that I didn't mention, which is sort of data management for anyone. I'd like to sort of bring that to maturity. What does that mean, data management for anyone? Yeah, so um, what I've seen in my professional career is uh, everyone has data, campaign, nonprofit, private company, some guy on the street, they have data. One of two things is the case. Either their systems don't talk to each other because they're all separate, or their systems don't talk to each other because they had a failed attempt to connect them. Maybe they tried to migrate everything into Salesforce. Maybe they tried to connect their tools to each other. Probably didn't work out. 
I'll be blunt. I'm sick and tired of doing the same work year over year as a consulting project. So what we've built Bluebell to do is to connect those tools on the back end and give you access to the data. Do you know Blue Link? I do know Blue Link. Um, I, I've spoken with the Talengers at some length. I think we're solving similar but different problems. Um, they're really focused on the data plumbing. How do we make sure data in place A gets to place B? It's a very important problem. My understanding is their customers are very happy with them. We're doing a slightly different thing, which is once we have all of your data in the same place, how do we help you as a non-technical person, person who doesn't want to write code or hire anyone to write code, get value out of it? Got it. Is that uh, related at all to the kind of civis offering around pulling data together and doing analytics? In, in many ways, yes. Um, I love the folks at Civis. I work very closely with them. The way I think about it is maybe you have all of your data in Civis, but you're still going to need to write code to work with it. Bluebell can sit on top of that so you don't have to write any code. Got it. Let's just pause for a sec until we get the hound under control. Benji, what, what should I have asked you that I haven't? The one thing that I keep thinking about as where the Democratic Party is going is um, how we can make sure that enough different kinds of voters are hearing our message. To take things in a very different direction for one second, if I may, you know, I worry that we as a party too often assume that Group A is homogenous and will vote in one direction or another. And I, I don't think that's right. You know, human beings are too diverse, even within pretty well-defined groups, to behave that way. Part of President Biden's success was reaching out in different ways to different people. So I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that that will continue. So do you mean by that, uh, like writing off all rural white voters or not contacting all urban black voters and assuming they're with us? What precisely are you talking about? Those are two great examples. Um, I think it's ridiculous to say that we have lost all rural white voters, just as I think it's ridiculous to say all the black men in Atlanta will vote Democratic or all the people with turnout scores below 10 aren't worth talking to. I think too often that turns into a fight in the Democratic Party about turnout versus persuasion and should we just focus on the base or should we focus on trying to persuade people to me, that's sort of separate, right? At the end of the day, if a voter has in any fashion expressed some openness and willingness to voting for Democrats, we should be capitalizing on that. And that doesn't mean we should compromise our principles. I'm not suggesting that for the rural white man, we join the NRA as a party. That's, that's absurd. But it is to say, you know, if there's a rural white man who's open to hearing from us on an economic issue, or if there is a black man in Atlanta, to go back to my example, who's at risk of getting fooled, frankly, by the Republicans, as Republicans always do, we should make sure both of those people are hearing from us. To suggest that either group is lost or won, I think is not correct. After having put about two years into this new enterprise, what do you think you've learned about entrepreneurship in the democratic data space, let's say? <laughs> um... Well, one thing I've learned about entrepreneurship generally is that it's very hard. Uh, I never quite appreciated what goes into it. And the respect I have for people who have done it has grown every second of every day. You know, in the democratic data space, I think the the challenge that I have had is is a good one, which is to prove that we're doing something new and exciting and worthwhile. There's so many people doing work in the space, good and bad work, that, you know, making sure our value proposition is clear, making sure our offerings are defined well, has been a really fun and interesting challenge. How do you think you are changing and growing as a result of this? It is a different set of skills, as you've kind of alluded to, to lead a enterprise of your own creation requires something different to come from inside. What, what have you discovered? Yeah. I mean, number one, certainly growing outwards. My snack consumption is up dramatically. Uh, but on a more <laughs> serious note, I think it's really taught me the difference between 
managing and leading, which I know sounds like such a LinkedIn influencer nonsense thing to say. But you know, before when I had a team reporting to me, I wanted to be a considerate and constructive and helpful manager, making sure that they are developing professionally and that I'm helping them grow their skills and that they're doing work without feeling micromanaged. Those are very difficult things, and I certainly don't think I'm perfect at them. If anyone who's ever worked for me is listening to this, feel free to keep that opinion to yourself. But on my own now, you know, as as captain of this ship, there's also a need to keep people bought into the enterprise, such as it is, to make sure they know that things are going okay, you know, that they will receive their paychecks on time. We've never missed a payroll, which I'm very proud of, just to make sure that they know that even though we're small, it's not any less real than a job you might have elsewhere. That to me has been an interesting and difficult challenge to work through, especially because there are some days where I just want to go back to bed and not deal with anyone and, you know, call it quits, which I, I know happens to everyone. But Keeping people bought into the concept, I think, is a new thing that I really didn't expect and that I'm still, from time to time, struggling with. There's a well-known book about small business that talks about like a pie-making business or something. It's started by a technician who has an entrepreneurial seizure. And you're a technician. One of the points of that is that you have to grow in those two other categories that you mentioned. How do you think about that, like going far out into the future? What changes might you need to make, if any? I, I'm positive I need to make some changes. I don't know that I have a handle on what they are yet exactly, uh, but it's a question I struggle with every day. I want this to succeed, and I flatter myself that I'm working hard at trying to make it succeed, but to suggest that I have all the answers is absurd. I joined what I like to call a business therapy group for people like me who have businesses about this size and are struggling with these same problems. That's been very helpful. What group is that? That's called Vistage. Um, it's like a business business therapy Um and you know they they're not. I don't political. think they call it therapy, but yeah, it's like a forum for entrepreneurs. Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah. It's it's not political at all, and that's good, right? I don't. It's not like I need advice on you know who the best candidate is, but um, it's all folks who are in my shoes who have the same problems of you know how do I grow the company while keeping customers happy, blah blah blah, and just hearing how other people have approached these things, hearing what's on their minds. And getting their advice on my own problems has been an incredibly rewarding and helpful thing. Yeah, I've done things like that. I never would have thought I would have for the first number of years participated in something like that. But I found that having peers who you could, I mean, the, the, the problems of small businesses are very similar across different domains. And having peers to share those with and to hear their experiences is definitely something worthwhile. A hundred percent. And it's also just interesting to learn about other people's businesses. You know, there are a lot of federal contractors in there. That's not something I want to do, but it's just been interesting to learn about that world, see a different side of things, realize that the world is bigger than, you know, me trying to get yet more slides out. Uh, and that's been just a good eye opener. One thing I'm curious about that I don't, there's been a number of developments in the world of democratic data uh, of late groups that are trying to help pass data from one type of entity to another, different things going on at the DNC, failed attempts to create other voter file entities or mostly failed. What have you seen going on that, that people ought to know about? Well, uh, the biggest thing, and I, I thank you for this question because it gives me an opportunity to give them a shout out, not that they need it from me, but I think the biggest thing is the Democratic Data Exchange. Lindsay Shukartes leading it and their incredible team, they have done something you know, that I thought would never happen for political reasons, you know, which is to permit the hard and soft sides to exchange data legally, of course, and you know, Lindsay and her folks have turned that from nothing into a very considerable something in just two or three years. And, you know, whenever I'm on a campaign consulting for them or just talking with anyone, to me, it's just such a must have now in the way that Van was 15 years ago or NGP was 20 years ago. Um, I, I think it is one of the keys to our future success as a party. 
I think that innovation is good, and I say that not just as someone with a new product to sell, but you know, in my honest opinion. But you know, I think we also don't need to throw out everything that has been just because it's old. You know, I, some of the new voter file options, Nathaniel, that you mentioned, I think don't take into account the millions of person hours that have been put into Van over the past fifteen years, and you know. For all of its warts, right, it has the result of so much user feedback and lessons that have been learned with extreme difficulty. I think we want to be lowercase c conservative about some of that stuff, meaning that, you know, we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We shouldn't change things just for the sake of change. There's so much institutional knowledge that I think must be preserved for us to be successful in the future. Are you following the the world of political campaign software. There's a lot of mergers, acquisitions, uh, new startups. You mentioned it early on in the in the interview, but do you see anything that you think is significant going on in that world? I'm interested to see where NGP Van continues to go, both as an alumnus and as a client. I think they have, you know, a lot of opportunity to continue directing for better or for worse, I would argue mostly for better directing the development of where some of the stuff goes. They definitely made the right decision to be more open with their APIs, to let new products connect with them, you know, as the hub. Their continued success is really going to benefit all of us by continuing to offer, you know, software that volunteers know how to use and that gets the job done. But have you noticed that, you know, there's a PDI and Civitech and numero and it's like a whole bunch of stuff out there helm yeah 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 some of these groups have really interesting products uh i can't say i'm i'm an expert on all of them um but i will say you know i think um the thing that i think some of these companies sometimes miss is how it's going to be used and applied on a campaign this is not a criticism of any company specifically I hope that's clear, but you know it's it's very easy to come in from Silicon Valley or San Francisco and say, "I've made a new tool that is going to solve campaigns." Oh, wait a minute! I've never knocked a door before. I actually don't know what I'm talking about. You know, if I had a dollar for every time that happened, I would be sponsoring your podcast. Benji, uh, honor to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, no. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I love the pod, as the kids would call it. And uh, <laughs> I hope I don't cause you to lose too many subscribers. Well, I, I'm a little concerned about that, but we'll see what we can do with the edit. Yeah. All right. Sounds All right. good. That was Benji Messner. Benji is at Benji Messner on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.